The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. All right, welcome, y'all. Thanks for downloading this edition of Setting the Record Straight. I'm Gordon Runyon, serving as a pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tucumcari, New Mexico. As you may or may not know, when this fine podcast started, it began as kind of a, a Q&A thing or a attempt at clearing up whatever misconceptions or questions that we encountered during the week. And I want to return to that for this podcast just a little bit for this edition and answer a few questions and issues that have arisen recently. Uh, the first one was on a Facebook thread and the question was asked and after I had answered it, several people responded that they thought the answer was really helpful. And of course, people are really nice that way. And so I don't know how much to believe about that kind of thing, but in the hope that somebody might actually be helped. Uh, I want to work through that. The question was something to the extent, this isn't a verbatim quote by far, but the question was about attempted crimes. And if we were living in a theonomic society, what would the punishment be for a for an attempted crime? My answer was to point to Deuteronomy chapter 19. And I'm going to read a few verses from Deuteronomy 19. Probably be familiar with this passage. This is the one where it talks about how to deal with perjury and false witnesses in a court. So Deuteronomy chapter 19, beginning at verse 16, it says, If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the disputes shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who were in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again any commit any such evil among you. Okay, so a lot of theonomists were pretty familiar with the punishment for perjury, and that is that the punishment for perjury kind of depends on what kind of crime is at trial here. As it says here in verse 19, you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So if it's a capital trial, and a false witness rises, I believe, either to accuse or to excuse. And it turns out that the witness is a false witness. Then the punishment for that instance of perjury is the same as the punishment that is at stake in the trial. So in a capital trial, a perjury, a perjury gets you capital punishment. Or if you're deciding a restitution that may equal $10,000, then that's it. Or if it's a eye-for-an-eye situation, same sort of thing. 
And so my proposal here is that what you have is a what you have is an attempt in a capital trial at least what you have is an attempt at murder by the court or murder through the instrumentality of the court you're going to get somebody put to death by falsely accusing them <clears throat> in fact we see that happen several times in the scripture one time successfully at least with regard to Nabob's or Nadab's vineyard Nabob <laughs> So Nadab's vineyard was an instance where he was put to death based on the testimony of false witnesses. And and so the perjurer who is caught, caught giving false testimony, he is punished. Regardless of that end that he had in mind, regardless of whether or not he's successful. <clears throat> And it says again, you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. How do you know he meant to do that? Because of his actions. So there's no requirement here to read the mind of the perjurer. I also pointed out in the same regard, talking about how to punish different crimes and intentions. And <clears throat> I also pointed out the law of the man breaking in in the middle of the night and how the homeowner in that instance is allowed to kill the man if he breaks in at night and there's no blood guilt assigned to it and so the practical effect of that is it relieves the homeowner the homeowner from having to discern the actual intentions of the burglar in the moment Nobody, not the law of God, not the judges, nobody was to expect that the man protecting his home would have an insight into what the burglar wanted. Maybe he did just want to go in there and steal some gold and get out. You know, but uh, the law doesn't take anything like that into account. You're breaking into somebody's home at night. If you wind up dead, you wind up dead. And so your intentions there are not nearly as important as your actions. Another place I can think of where this is, this uh, principle is illustrated, the principle that it's your actions that matter and not your intentions, is in laws having to deal with discerning between murder and self-defense and manslaughter. And I believe the teaching there is that if you pick up a weapon while you're struggling with your brother, you pick up a weapon and actually do him in. Well, the fact that you had the weapon in your hand and you smashed his head with it, the rock or the club or whatever it was, you beat his brains out. You don't get to then, to then claim that you only intended to make him stop and or uh, you intended to wound but not to kill. Those things aren't listed as relevant at that point. In fact, it's just the fact that you have a weapon in your hand that disqualifies disqualifies it from being accidental. And so you might even see in that something like a, uh, a rule about escalating force and stuff like that. But for sure, 
if I come after you with a war club and you wind up dead, I don't get to claim I wasn't trying to kill you. And so your intentions are not nearly as important as your actions. Now under that, under that answer that I gave in that moment, another brother came in and gave a hypothetical, let's say the two kids, I forget what their names were, the two kids that did the Columbine shooting. Let's say that one day as they're sitting around planning to do this, which I think we know that they did that, they sat around and made detailed plans about what was going to happen. Let's say hypothetically one of those guys decides, you know, I'm, I'm out. I'm not going to do this. And they get in an argument about it and he leaves. But five minutes after he's gone, the police are on to him and they bust in the, into the place where the plans are being kept and they find the plans and it's pretty obvious that they've both been working on these on these plans to do evil. So the question was, who who gets punished and, and how? Does that qualify as attempted murder because they were actually making plans? I say that it was. It qualifies as what we read in Deuteronomy 19 as uh, meaning to do something evil to your neighbor. They meant to do these things, which is why they started making these plans. And then I think the issue was, well, so the guy that repented, what about him? My answer is the fact that you turned away in that moment, but then were caught before you could actually, oh, I don't know, do something like turn the other guy in or tell somebody about it or or take really any action at all to distance yourself from what was going on, the fact that you're nabbed before any of that happens, at some point you have to chalk that up to the providence of God. The fact that God in that moment didn't give you enough time to actually put any legs on your repentance, well, maybe that means you should have repented sooner. Or maybe that means that all the time you spent actually planning to massacre people maybe that was enough to make god say enough is enough and your time is done so another illustration i had was let's say i call up my friend from church and he only lives four blocks away or something let's say i call him up and and tell him i've had it with you you're done i'm headed over to your place i'm bringing my gun i'm gonna i'm gonna take care of you Okay, so on the way there, I have a change of heart. And of course, I cool off and I realize, you know, probably pastors shouldn't be out there just killing people and stuff. And, and so I'm not going to do it. Well, meantime, I was so convincing and threatening him that he's already called 911. And, and the police intercept me and they stop me. And there I am with my gun and what... Am I guilty? Should I be let go? When I go to court for attempted murder, how much weight is it going to have for me to plead before the judge that I really wasn't going to do it? I I started out going to do it, but after driving for a couple of blocks, I decided, no, that's not a pastorly thing to do. So I really wasn't going to do it. Well, that's not going to do anything. However, 
say I actually did the U-turn, and by the time the police catch me, I'm driving toward my house and not toward his. And they may still arrest me because, you know, police don't know what justice is anyway and all that. But then when it goes to court, if it does, uh, my case is going to be a lot stronger for saying I changed my mind and that's why I had turned around and was headed home. And so I think the principle for attempted crimes is if you take an action toward the commission of a crime and the providence of God causes that action to fail to do what you thought it would do, then you don't, that doesn't save you from the punishment of the crime that you intended to commit. Your incompetence as a criminal doesn't save you from punishment. And your bad timing doesn't either. If you don't repent in time to actually do anything about your repentance, then don't expect any, anybody to believe that you really changed your mind. So that's my bottom line. I think maybe that would be helpful to you and be interested in hearing your thoughts on it. So my bottom line is that I believe if I believe that intention to commit crime can be proven through action. And if it can be proven through action, then it's punished as if the action was successful. I think that's the model that we have here. And if you're going to claim, well, I had an intention and then I changed, you better have a corresponding action that shows you were moving in the other direction. Let's take a little break now. Listen to my friend Jason Sanchez talk about Reconstructionist Radio. We'll be back with something a little less heavy. And, and well, what else do you say about Gilligan's Island? We'll be right back. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. And we're back on an old school edition of Setting the Record Straight, where I'm just talking about issues that have come up and questions that may need to be answered or maybe providing some uh, fodder for continuing to talk about these things. Anyway, I want to talk for a moment about a question that I received from friend of the podcast, Jed Shirley who took time from binge-watching The Office to ask me a question. And the question is specifically, he has heard people claim that the TV show Gilligan's Island shows communism in action. 
that it's basically propaganda in favor of communism. Because you got these seven people on an island and they're all working together and sharing all their stuff. And so it's a big infomercial for communism wherever it's found. And just wanted me to address that a little bit here. I'm not sure there's a whole lot to address. I think that... <clears throat> I think that what has happened in our day, that communism and socialism have been so misunderstood and so uh, thinly discussed, especially in the public schools, is that you wind up with people graduating our educational institutions with the idea that communism basically equals sharing and everybody get a, getting along. And so if there is if there is pro communist propaganda in this it's with those who would want to say see this is communism it's not with Gilligan's Island itself it's with those who would try to push this narrative that say says anytime you see people sharing their goods well then you've got communism because that's all communism is and of course the truth is historically and philosophically that's not that isn't all that communism is. Communism isn't about sharing, right? <laughs> communism is about central planning and a central authority taking control of every sector of the economy and deciding who wins and loses and deciding to do what it must to even things out or, or really accomplish whatever goal they're seeking to accomplish. It's the centralized authority that makes that uh, turns communalism into communism of course everybody also points to the early chapters like chapter six especially chapter five chapter six of the book of acts that shows the church living in a situation that could fairly be described as very communal you know, it says at one point that the people who were involved in the church didn't consider their own stuff to be their own. And if somebody had a need, then in their minds that stuff belonged to them. And so they would sell it and and use the proceeds for whatever the need was. And so you see the church living in that manner for at least a time. In Jerusalem, and that's been accused of being communism. Except that there was no controlling central authority, at least not earthly-wise. <laughs> there was an authority that was controlling all of that, but it was the Holy Spirit. It's control from the throne of God, which is not communism. In fact, of course, famously, when Ananias and Sapphira lied to everybody, including the Holy Spirit, one of the things that Peter said to them, or at least to Ananias first, was that, you know, basically, correct me if I'm wrong here, Ananias, you tell me, who did that property belong to before you sold it? Well, it belonged to Ananias and Sapphira, and there was nobody there, no church authority, no uh, church officer with a title or with coercive institutional power there was nobody there to tell Ananias and Sapphira that hey 
it's your turn. Your number's up, so you go sell your stuff. Nobody did that. Now, why would they? Well, if you read just a little bit before that, you see a little vignette, a little story of the man we come to know as Barnabas. And the reason it makes it in there is that Barnabas apparently had a big plot of land and he sold it and brought everything in. And apparently, it doesn't say this, but this is just my imagination figuring out how these things work. But it seems to me it must have been a gigantic number. The the cost of that land must have been huge because Barnabas brings in his stuff while everybody else is bringing in theirs. But suddenly we all have to stop and go, whoa, look at that. <laughs> and it survives in Holy Scripture. And and it was apparently it was apparently at least a catalyst to uh Barnabas's name being kind of prominent in the early church that was a very significant act of grace and uh generosity on his part kind of earned him a reputation with the apostles well i think that's what Ananias and Sapphira were after they wanted the recognition so they go and they sell their stuff they bring it in they lie about what it was and peter told them it was it was always yours nobody told you you had to sell it and then once you sold it nobody told you you had to bring all the money here if you had wanted to keep part of that you could have done that but to come in here and act like you've done this big thing that you didn't do uh, that's what's gotten you into trouble and so the early church was not communistic either and neither was gilligan's island yeah they were sharing a lot of stuff but you know, they all had their own stuff, too. The rich guys, Thurston Howell III and Lovey, they didn't share their clothes around with everybody. They were still walking around in the best clothes, and, and everything inside their hut was noticeably better than everybody else's. And nobody cared. You know, nobody really cared. So I can imagine a situation. Let's say that my my tiny congregation in Tucumcari, New Mexico, that we we all go out for a cruise. A three-hour tour, and we wind up stranded on a desert island. Uh, I can imagine, until we get rescued, we're not going to need things like money. It's going to be a long time before we need anything like money. It's going to be a super long time before we need anything like government. It just won't, because in my little, tiny little congregation, you've got a bunch of regenerate people whose desire is to serve the kingdom of God. And the struggle would be to get them to keep some stuff for themselves in most occasions. And nobody's got a desire to work any evil on anybody else. And that's not communism. When you see kids out on the playground and they're sharing their toys, that's not communism. That's sharing <laughs> okay so the the significant theonomic question of the day was gilligan's gilligan's island a commercial for communism <laughs> i say no come at me come at me bro all right that's about all i have for you today Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Setting the Record Straight. Y'all go out and serve God. Amen.
Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks. 